Welcome to the Organic Gardener Podcast. I'm your host, Jackie Marie Beyer. Let's get growing. Hey, everyone. Have you been to the Organic Gardener Podcast website and signed up for our email list? If you go there, you will get my new PDF, Seven Awesome Ways to Find More Time in Your Garden. And it's just some tips that I've learned from listening to my amazing guests who are always sharing with us super effective ways to be a better gardener. So if you um, head over to the organicgardenerpodcast.com and enter your email, you'll get seven awesome ways to find more time in your garden. You can also get a copy of our ebook of Organic Gardening Basics. And just um, all the show notes are there, all the links to our show. So, and I'll be sending out some golden seeds newsletters as I get them done. And of course, you'll get a special invitation to join the Organic Gardener Podcast Facebook community. Hope to see you there. Welcome to the Organic Gardener Podcast today. I'm excited to introduce a guest who was introduced to me by one of my other podcasting friends. And it's just a total coincidence because this guest actually lived um, right in Fortine, which is, uh, I know I say I live in Eureka a lot, but we're halfway between Eureka and this little town of Fortine. And that's the school I taught at this winter. And so she used to live there. So we are have similar backgrounds, but now um, she's in Wisconsin running um, a little community supported agriculture and uh, event floral arrangement business called Willoway Farm. Um, so today I am excited to introduce, and her name also is the same as mine, another Jackie, although it's spelled differently. Uh, the full name Jacqueline, we spell the same, but I spell Jackie J-A-C-K-I-E, and she spells her Jackie J-A-C-Q-U-I. Um, so Jackie, Jackie Folkemer, welcome to the show today. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, thank you I am you excited for to talk to you. Yeah, so... Um, tell everyone a little bit about yourself. Okay. Um, as you know, I'm J Jackie, and I live in Fredonia, Wisconsin. This is about 45 miles north of Milwaukee. And my partner and I um, manage and own an eight-acre farm where we have about an acre and a half of vegetables, cut flowers, and herbs that we manage organically, and we also have about 75 young apple trees on top of our hill uh, that we've grafted every spring with our own root stock. We, we sell to CSA clients, so that's community-supported agriculture, uh, and then we also sell to local shops and even a small local school, and we attend one farmer market as well. Excellent. And I'm uh, so glad you explained yeah. community-supported agriculture. Now, do you have a podcast? We do have a podcast. Um, we It's called Willoway Farmcast. So we oh, just nice. kind of took the pod out and made it a farmcast. We started doing it as a newsletter for our CSA members. Uh, it first is on SoundCloud, and then we have a couple episodes on YouTube. Not YouTube, iTunes, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I, we haven't done one yet this year. We 
are about to do one, and I kind of got behind the iTunes because I sadly forgot how to upload them, <laughs> and I got a little caught up with the season. So this year we'll have more iTunes farmcast, as we call it, and we talk about what's in the basket, what's happening at the farm. We also encourage anyone who's listening to send us questions so that we could actually repeat them and answer them, because if one person has that question, it's very well that somebody else might. Um, and we really enjoy doing it. We do it very impromptu, kind of at the end of the day, and you'll hear the sounds of the farm. Sometimes we'll just post sounds from the farm to give people a little earshot. Um, and part of the reason why we do it is, A, we don't feel like typing late at night after we're gardening or editing, and B, it's a way that people can simply listen to the podcast without being locked into their computer and staring at a screen. This way they could be washing dishes even, or whatever it is they're doing, and listen to our podcast on their way home from picking up the basket however convenient it works for them awesome excellent um and yeah i think we all kind of like it that way i mean we're on a podcast right now so most people yeah uh prefer to download it although i have to say i was just reading the show notes from my yesterday i just posted this episode about podcasting and i just uh was like i just wanted to you know go through it really quick just to make sure it and it was it was a pretty fast to just read through the show notes so um people like their different ways but definitely the you know the biggest thing to me about podcasting is you can listen while you're driving or running or like you said doing the dishes or i don't know my two big places are yeah. when I'm running in the woods and when i'm driving anyway so that's just another place listeners can um talk to you and i'm so excited to hear about your selling to local chefs and just everything going on but I do like to start the show, Jackie, asking about your very mm -hmm. first gardening experience. Like, how old were you? Who were you with? What did you grow? Like, where did you grow up? Or where was your first gardening well, experience? Maybe it was as an adult. You know, it's. I grew up in New Jersey, and my parents were not big gardeners. I grew up in a neighborhood. My dad definitely enjoyed growing flowers, mostly. I do recall when I was young, we got a little Cabbage Patch Kid gardening kit. And oh. uh, yeah, and it was uh, the first time I actually planted vegetables. And that, I don't even know how old I was, but definitely elementary school. And we, we didn't plant it at our, our home base. My parents did have a little, a tiny little seashore shack that they rented out and they let me plant my little, little cucumbers and whatnot in that sandy garden, but they did well, and that was really exciting for me to plant something and then later come back and eat the cucumbers because even as a child, I really liked cucumbers. Not to say I didn't really like a lot of other vegetables, but cucumbers were it for me. And um, so that was my first gardening experience, and then after that, I simply was always drawn to doing outdoor work in nature. And when I landed in Whitefish, Montana, I want to say in um, 1999 spring, yeah, I think, <laughs> I you remember sometimes, um, I, I did, uh, my roommate uh, attended, had been to Purple Frog Gardens 
in Whitefish, and she brought me over there. And this was, like, one of my first roommates. And I started volunteering at Purple Frog Gardens, and then Pam was like, hey, you know, I'd be happy to pay you. So on my weekends, when I wasn't working for the Forest Service, I would work over at Pam's place. And that was my first real diving in, doing all sorts of different organic chores in the, her garden with her chickens and the apple juice, whatever it was she was she needed help with. Okay. And Pam was an amazing guest on my show just in February, I think. So listeners, if you want to learn more about Pam's Purple Garden adventure and her chickens and just she's been doing this for years and talks a lot about community and volunteers and uh, just tons of great tips there. So do you want to tell listeners just a tiny bit about working for the Foresters if they're interested? Well, you know, I went towards to forestry. I, that's when I left Raleigh, New Jersey, where I was raised. I left when I was 18. I went to college at Paul Smith College in the Adirondacks um, because they had a forestry program. And I basically had decided in high school I wanted to get paid to work in the woods. That was my dream. And once I landed in Montana, because of my experience with the forestry classes and whatnot, I did get a forest service position. And I did that for four summers three summers in Montana, one summer in Alaska. And, you know, that kind of work was mostly labor. I was even able to work on a fire crew and do a little traveling. That was through the Alaskan Forest Service summer. And otherwise, when I worked on the fire crew in Montana, it was more locally. They didn't fly us out. Um, So it was really a lot of experiences. It showed me what I was capable of doing because... I got chainsaw certified, all these little things that, man, if you would have asked me back in Raleigh, New Jersey in high school that I would be running a chainsaw or even simply skiing down mountains, like I didn't grow up doing any of that stuff and I wasn't exposed to that stuff, but I, I, I put myself there. You know, sometimes you got to put yourself in places to make things happen. And that's how I really landed up where I am today. And, um, so when I when I moved to Montana, I didn't know anybody. I just put myself there, and things happened pretty quickly and lovely. Like, and um, the only thing that I did not enjoy about working for the Forest Service was simply that I was, no offense to everybody else, but I was a peon in the in the government kind of job world. You know, I could work in the field. I can see trees that are planted and um, south-facing slopes that replanted because of they were cutting down trees, leaving five trees per acre. And they weren't growing back. But all the money that is being spent for people to plant the trees, check to see if they're growing, surveying the land, finding out, oh man, it's not growing because it's a south-facing slope and in Montana a lot of times there's droughts and dry periods. So it was frustrating to see some things don't really work. And the only way you can bring that to the attention of anybody or make changes, yeah, talk to the people in Washington, D.C. So 
some management I know is good in the Forest Service and some maybe not the best. And the people in Washington, D.C. aren't always in tune with what's happening locally. So um, that made me think, man, maybe I don't want to keep pursuing forestry because I don't want to be in an office later, but I don't want to not have a voice. So it was... Tam from Purple Frog Gardens said to me after maybe my fourth season working there that, hey, have you thought about farming? <laughs> and, I, and I told her no. I I felt like you couldn't earn enough income from farming. It, it kind of, it was, I just wasn't, and not that money was what I was going for. I, I simply was nervous about it. And it seemed like you even at that point, Pam was building her farm up to be something. So it's a lot of years in, of investment. And the return often comes a bit later down the road. So you need, even at that time when she said that to me, I think I just started dating Dan. So those things didn't fall into place yet. Um, but that, because of my experience with the forest service and figuring out maybe that it wasn't the route, it made me turn my cheek towards organic farming because it was still outdoor work, which is awesome. Besides other things, you're more in control of how you manage the land. And yeah, it's really your creativity in gardening and farming and being innovative with ideas and making it work. And it's also discipline and diligence and all that good stuff. So yeah, graduated from, forest you work and I don't pick up a chainsaw anymore <laughs> well I'll tell you you're brave you. I barely will took pick mics up if it's not running I'm still like always terrified that thing is gonna like yeah. you know, rip off and slash which is so funny because like Mike is basically a logger now I yeah. know pretty much he just cuts down firewood but still like all these years all these trees I've seen him cut down and it still scares me I would never run a chainsaw so right. yeah, Plus, and like the I, whole like tipping the tree over and can fall on you. That whenever, <laughs> yeah, Sorry. and whenever I ran a chainsaw, I always wore chaps. There's, there's no freaking way I'd be running a chainsaw without protecting my legs. And I've seen many men not wear their chaps. But hey, they're more comfortable with it, I guess. I don't know. I've never seen Mike wear chaps. Anyway, yeah, okay. I know. So, but that is the greatest story. I love all that. And did you know that Mike and I met planting trees here? That's how we met. Right? So I love your whole thing about you got to put yourself out there because if I hadn't put myself out there and come up here, like I still remember driving from Missoula up to Whitefish and then leaving Whitefish to come up to Fortine. But I stopped at Murphy Lake because that's where I was meeting the tree planters. And I lived at Murphy Lake for like three weeks or I don't know, for a long time before I ever found Fortine or Eureka or Nua. I was like, I'm thinking I'm out in the middle of nowhere, 45 miles north of Whitefish and there's just mountains everywhere. Little did I know there's like the Fortine yes. Merc. I remember the first time I walked into that old antique store that used to be the Fortine Merc and just being like, oh, bagels, bread, cheese. This is the coolest thing ever. <laughs> And, yeah, just, and then right? Eureka was a really long time before I went into Eureka. And I just, Murphy Lake is still one of my all-time favoriteest places to go in the whole world. But anyway, we better yeah. move on with it. So tell us then, sure. so did you learn how to garden organically, I guess, at Pam's farm? 
I learned a lot there. I mean, because she was doing multiple crops from hops to apple. She was just planting her apple trees. I loved the way she fed her chickens, um, which was more like whole grain. That's and we're not doing that because we haven't. We just don't have the infrastructure yet. We purchased mm-hmm. our organic feed from Cashton Farm Supplies. It's a, a non-soy certified organic feed for our layered chickens. But Pam, Pam did feed her chickens soy at that time, and there's just a lot of different things and happening on her farm. And she also grew flowers. Not a lot at that time, but she was growing flowers. So, and simply being at a job, kind of just getting face to face with soil was is a little bit more more intimate than that's a different kind of in, intimacy than working for the Forest Service. You know, you're working with a, it's it is just different. You're you're really more engaged in helping things grow and understanding how the soil works and whatnot. Um, after that, however, I did, me and Dan did move to Wisconsin, because he's from Fredonia, Wisconsin, and he was thinking about the future, and he was just thinking about moving back, and Montana's great, but it's pretty, it's very seasonal. Um, I work, me and Dan met at a ski mountain restaurant, and... So I worked for the Forest Service during the summer, and then in the winter I would work at ski hills. And the problem with ski ski towns are great, but if there's no snow in the winter, the people aren't really coming, and then your income goes down. So for me personally, there was a little bit of instability that maybe we discussed maybe by moving to Wisconsin and having a family around, which can always be helpful, would be a good move. So... That is what we did, and upon moving to Wisconsin, I was adamant, because of working at an organic farm for four years, I was like, I need to find one, like, right away, so that I can at least work for food. And as I looked around, we discovered Michael Fields Agricultural Institute in East Troy, Wisconsin, and we arrived in the fall in Wisconsin in 2003, and they had a open house for their program, which was called the Garden Student Program. And it it began the following March. And so we enjoyed the open house and the overview of the course. And at the time, Dan and I really didn't have a next plan. So we were like, let's try this. And so we did the Garden Student Program for, oh, I don't know, five five to six months. And that program gave you tons of paperwork and provided workshops for things that you might be particularly, particularly, sorry, I can't say it, interested in um, learning about, plus teaching you the ins and outs of market gardening, growing organically, small scale, larger scale. Um, And so you worked every day on the farm, and uh, it was it was good. It really gave us a good um, beginning. And after that, well, they had a bulletin board in the office at Michael Fields, flyers, tons of flyers, all through the month. <laughs> people just add in. It's all for, like, help on farms or maybe people selling farm equipment. And back in the spring of 2004, I noticed 
really early on, there was a flyer for this farm or some land in northeast East Pennsylvania and in this mountain region and looking for someone to farm the land biodynamically and organically. And part of the reason why it caught my eye was because it was in a town that my parents had land maybe a half hour from. So I thought, you know, you never know, maybe after we do this garden student program, maybe we should check that out and just do like a trial period of doing what we just learned at a at a farm where we were just paying rent and um so it's not as big of a risk, you know, you haven't invested so much. Um, so we did end up going there and there we took a hay field and had a plowed under. We made a about an acre garden with all raised beds four feet wide. I forget how long the garden beds were, but there were four sections and we grew our vegetables and flowers. We Dan built a greenhouse to start all our stuff and that summer we sold the chefs and the farmer market. Um, I, we did not have a CSA that summer, but it was a great experience. Um, we learned a lot and we were like, hey, I think we can do this. So, I mean, even our living, we lived in a, what was an old bull barn um, and we simply had to spread biodynamic preps on about 80 acres for the rent of the land. So it was, our overhead was really low and it was a beautiful place. But after, so that was a, whatchamacallit, 2005. And I found, for me, I was probably in my late 20s at that time, I we were planting the perennials, you know, tulip bulbs and stuff. And then you just start getting inspired to, oh, I want to plant the apple trees. I want to plant the... You just want to do it because me and Dan really wanted to grow fruits and vegetables. But a part of me really wanted to do that on our own land. Yeah. So instead of doing it somewhere else, um, because you don't stay young forever and you just really... You know, I didn't want to be much older when my back was hurting trying to plant apple trees. You can do it, but it's just a little harder. And then you don't see the return as soon. So I was I was kind of anxious to settle down. <laughs> that was me. Um, and so I, so I started looking at real estate in Wisconsin. And during uh, December of 2005, we... I found a place for sale, and it was for sale on a Thursday, and it had this wonderful south-facing slope, about eight acres, and I looked at it on a Saturday, or we looked at it on Saturday, and then on Monday we put a bid down, because it was an amazing piece of property. Okay. You already have dropped a ton of golden seeds just in our first two questions. So I really kind of went off there. (laughs) A couple of quick things for listeners. So um, in 2012, I think, I applied to this communications program at Columbia University in New York and really wanted to go. And so I found this website. It's, It's some New Jersey website. I'll put the link in the show notes. But like 
you can go there and people list exactly what you're talking about. Those farms that you can rent or maybe even buy or people looking for people to work on a farm. You can also, I think, put up if yeah. you're looking, if you want to work on a farm and maybe somebody, but mostly it was like this listing of farms that were looking for people to come manage them, just like you're talking about. And I thought that was going to be the perfect thing. And Mike and I were going to go to New York and I was going to go to Columbia and he was going to farm. Um, but that never sure worked out so mm -hmm. but that's a great resource for listeners and I just think you you know you've taught a lot of people about there are opportunities where you can test the waters see what you like you learned a yeah. ton of stuff there you learned about you know selling to chefs selling to the farmers market and then the other thing and I tell people this all the time because people come to Montana and they think they're going to build a house and I'm always telling them you should spend a year on your property and get to know it where is that south fate like Mike knew that like our house house is passively designed it's up on kind of on a hill we're never going to flood our windows fate you know where yes. the south the gardens down in the south part I'm always like why don't we plant over here on the you know off the kitchen but that's on the north side of our house so that's not the place sure. where you'd want it like you know so it's good to know where's the sunset where where does the sun come up in the morning where are you going to get that sun because we kind of have a hill so our sun comes up later than it does like in town um, but that's just mm -hmm. because that's where our property is. So just, you know, those are great tips for listeners, you know, find your area. And then I also, when, um, Mike and I bought our first investment property, when I was teaching in Browning, we bought a piece over in Cupping house over in Cupping for me to stay in. And when I walked in the house, I knew just like you did day one, cause I had been looking for investment properties for like 10 years. And I just knew as soon as I walked into it, the price was right. The location was right. The size of the, everything about, I mean, you, you're not always going to get a hundred percent. Like it only had one bathroom and it only had one. We would have liked a two bedroom, sure. but at the same mm -hmm. time, I mean, it was a great deal. People still are amazed that we made as much as we did when we sold that house. And just when you know, you know, but you knew because you had been looking and then my last yeah. little thing is what a great thing because when I moved to Montana, my parents were like, you're going to be so far away. And I was like, no, I'll come visit. I'll come visit. And I'm lucky if I get to go home twice a year because it, it is a hard place to make a living here. And um, yeah. going home and has turned out I mean, to be, and you don't realize how much you're going to yeah. miss it. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. I, well, you know, I'm from New Jersey. Dan is from yeah. Wisconsin. and. Lots of people make the move. Lots of people will stay in Montana. I have friends in Montana, and their family is in the Midwest, but, you know, and they're super happy, whatever. And, but for us, you know, and it actually does make sense to be here. We have two kids now. His parents help out immensely, and we couldn't do it without that family help. And even, like... When we were in Pennsylvania, we had to get to know that community, and the community really embraced us. We had a wonderful farmer, dairy farmer who he was the one that loaned us equipment sometimes to help plow the field. Another older gentleman did the plowing of the field because they wanted to see that farm like get a new breath of life. And after we came there, because we were only there for one year, after we came there, she had an a new couple farmers. I mean, they're still they're still doing their stuff. They have sheep now. They're doing vegetables and flowers. And I'm not taking credit for any of that because actually the landlord is also an organic farm inspector, and um, so she's really involved in that realm. And she's really into biodynamics. But it, it's nice. It, um, maybe I'm getting off topic. I don't know. Um, 
but that just created that opportunity that we needed. And kind of to go back, there, right now, because land is so expensive, for a lot of the young aspiring farmers, mm-hmm. there are a lot. There's now more and more incubator farms kind of providing situations like that. Um, so that's good for a little for the aspiring farmers or organic growers out there to know. Um, but yeah, we're our the the other thing about our property is it had the outbuildings, it had the hilltop where you see three sixty degrees. Everything about it was so wonderful. And I'm kind of going back a little bit, but. That December, when it went on sale, we actually visited Wisconsin um, in September, a few months beforehand, because Dan's grandpa was dying. And um, the farm that we ended up purchasing, we drove by, and his parents live in the village of Fredonia. So the fact that it's so close to his parents' house was, of course, another bonus because then they can hop over and help out when it was convenient for them. But we drove by this property in September, kind of just looking at places in the country that were for sale. Just, you know, you take your Sunday cruise, you see what's out there. And we drove by this, and Dan said right away, he's like, wow, look at that place. I'd live there. And, oh. man, three, three months later, here I am, because there wasn't even a real estate sign on the property. Property. I had to drive to the address, and there was no picture on the website. It was just an address and a, you know, the little description. And I drove by it, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, there it is!" No like, way. So Dan, so when Dan was like, when he came to the property, he was like, "Yeah, I don't know if I can say no," <laughs> you know, um, because it, it's not when we when when we were looking, Dan and I didn't have a lot of money saved up, so. His parents um, helped make it happen by putting a down payment down, allowing us to take a loan out for an affordable mortgage for what we felt like we could afford. So his dad has an excavating business, and so his dad owns part of the barn and has built his shop there. And uh, which awesome. Yeah, so he's got like the bigger equipment. So that first summer we were here in 2006, we didn't sell yet, but that was the year to kind of create the infrastructure needed on the farm, which was laying out the irrigation um, and building a greenhouse and just kind of feeling out the land first before we jumped right in. And we got our soil maps and did some soil testing, all that stuff to kind of see what we had, what we had. So that's and awesome, and I bet they are so yeah. glad they did that because you guys are there and they get to be with their grandkids. I'm sure they are super yeah, happy. Yeah, they really do. It's kind of like that. it's only five. It's five miles from their house, but it's almost like their little north house Aww. because it gives it gives them the space to. It's not, you know, you don't have the neighbors. We don't, mm-hmm. our neighbors, you can't even see from our house. So we're pretty fortunate in that, right, too, for privacy. Awesome. I think listeners are going to be so inspired that maybe the solution's <laughs> out there. And just that's the coolest story. I, w- I could live there, and three months later, there it is for sale. So just follow your heart. Yeah. And, you know, Sometimes you never know what really opportunities are going to. 
Yeah. Okay. I mean, things really just kept happening. And um, even at that time when I was in Pennsylvania, before we bought the farm, I was taking training for being an independent certified organic farm inspector. So that was my side gig because I felt the value in being up to date in organic standards and whatnot would be really great. You know, here I am, I'd be visiting other farms and learning what they do, maybe learning what doesn't work. However, every farm is different. So what works for one farm is not necessarily going to work for another. And really, farmers are pretty nice people, especially organic farmers. And um, so it was, and once I was able, once I finished my training and I was had lived in Wisconsin and then I started getting work, I got to drive around Wisconsin and get more familiar with a state that I wasn't familiar with at all. So that was a good experience. I, I did inspect certified organic farms for eight years and organic dairies and some processing facilities and uh, yeah. Can you just tell care. us a little more like how long did that take you to get that training like a year or three years or like what's I, that like? I People probably like what I can be an organic farm inspector? I'm going to check well, that out. You could. You, it, it does take when I needed to first okay there's um, an association it's the IOIA, and I hope I said that right because it's been years since I've been an inspector. That's all right. I'll look it up but and put the link in the show notes. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's um, Independent or Organic Inspector Association. And so they offer many training courses. Um, typically, there are three to four days during different parts of the country. There's, they start you out. And you have to apply to be accepted into the training. And usually it requires hands-on experience in organic farming or production in some way or a degree in you know, sustainable ag or somewhere in the, those fields so that they know you have a background before you actually take the training. You know, you might not have ever farmed, but you might have a background in organic coffee production, like the package packaging on it of it and all that stuff so you might decide I want to train to inspect organic processing operations and not the farm part so it does different kinds of people can really pursue that career um, and the training I think I might have said this already but the trainings are typically three to four days you do lots of you know overhead projection, lectures and stuff, and then there you go to either farms or the processing facilities for a first-hand look of the process and whatnot and what things you would look for as an organic inspector. And then finally, at the end of the course, you take some sort of exam test. And then usually before the end of the course, you know if you completed and got your certificate. And so typically you do... Whatever kind of programs you want to do, I, I ended up taking the training for all of the programs um, because dairy, organic dairy farms are going to have completely different rules than a crop production farm and so forth. And then you typically will find an inspector that is willing to take you on as an apprentice and therefore you 
attend various farms with that inspector shadow him and typically like the third or fourth one or whenever you feel ready you write the report and I think and then inspector you know will check it over make sure it's all good and fine and then you submit it to that agency and with Inspecting, being an organic inspector, there's options where you can be independent and work for various certified organic agencies because there's many different ones which all follow the USDA organic standards, but they also have their own guidelines that they create within the um, agencies guidelines, whatever they decide that they really look for. Um, some or certified organic agencies only have in-house inspectors, and there you are. You're hired by the agency. You may work for part-time. Other ones, like I said, will hire independent ones. You kind of get on a list. With the IOIA organization, you get on a list saying you're an independent inspector. This is what my experience is. And then the agencies will call you up in the beginning of the season so that you can start scheduling your inspections. And you schedule your inspections. You go to the farm. You check out the entire operation, paying attention to detail, using your eyes, your ears, your nose, everything to get a good sense of the farm. And, of course, you go through the paperwork, you do an audit, you write a report, or you edit it if you need to edit it. I always needed to edit it. <laughs> and um, then you submit the report, and that's your job. Um, that's kinda... What's the biggest challenge okay. to that job? For the me? Or I, meeting I, the people? I'm going like... to say there were two challenges, and it's, one is the fact that I'm running a farm here, and it's simply the time it takes away from farming because you're on the road. You know, you're, when I did inspections, you're trying to get, you know, three inspections in one day in the same area to maximize your time and stuff. Or, you know, sometimes it's only two because sometimes it can take a while. It all depends on the operation. But when you're gone, you're gone, and you're not doing anything on the farm. Your farm can need you. You run a farm, you know, like there's never nothing to do. So there's that, and then you come back home, and if you have to edit the report, then you got to go in your zone, get on the computer, and exit from the farm again. So to, for me, it was mostly about time. It's like it was fine in the beginning, but then I had a child, and once I had my first child, I was like, ooh. I have to take care of my child, do stuff on the farm, and go away and do inspections. And I was nursing him, and six months after he was born, I started doing inspections. And and that's fine, you know, that's what people do, and you, you can pump your milk and all that good stuff. But once I started pumping my milk and was working less on what he was demanding and more like what the inspection inspection job might be demanding, you know, okay, I'm at an inspection, I need to pump my milk, I'd like to do it now, but i got to wait another hour, stuff like that. Finding places to pump your milk when you're on the road is not super convenient. Um, but I've, and this is personal, but my, I felt like my milk production went down because I, I didn't really have him with me all, all the time. And um, so that was that. And then once I got pregnant with my second girl and... 
or my second child happened to be a girl. Um, I she was doing July first, too. So I was like, okay, we're having a summer baby, and I was doing inspections that year, but of course I told them I wouldn't be close to the due date. And after she was born, um, and later when I tried to introduce a bottle to her, she didn't want the bottle. So I was like, oh, well, I I can either really work with her and make her want it, or I could just say, forget it. I maybe this is telling me to stay home with my kids and be more a part of my farm and not try to do everything. So I dropped doing inspections and try to figure out, well, what else could I do to fill that void? And I, I decided to focus more on flowers because I simply love flowers and we already grew a bunch as part of our CSA options and and I've done I had done a few weddings. So I just decided to explore that more and I think it it was the right choice, but it is an adjustment because now I have to market another part of the business. It's not just the vegetables. But I really have to kinda of push a little more to market the flowers because I would love for it to be as much income as or close to as I earned when I did part-time inspection work. So that's that. Okay. Wow. All right. Well, I could ask you a lot more questions. Like part of me is going, can you not bring a child on an, like, like that wouldn't work, huh? I mean, you're talking to somebody who never had a baby, so I don't know. Uh, Yeah. Anything no. about that? It seems like that would be the kind of thing where you could take a baby along, but no, huh? To uh, no, you never know when they need you. No, I mean, farmers' time is valuable. You can't take up more of their time than they've made for you. You got to okay. be efficient. So okay. there's really no. Okay. One moment. Uh... Well, that might be a good, somebody else in the audience might have been thinking, well, I'd just bring my baby along and they would realize that, no, that wouldn't work. But you never know when everybody, like you said, every situation is different. Um, and that's yeah. important to know that a farmer's time is valuable, that you that your inspection is supposed to be from this time to this time and you have to be efficient and quick when you're going through there. So um, Yeah, you can't talk and about also, baloney stuff. It's, e- it's easy to be tempted to talk about stuff outside of the inspection. You gotta if if there if there's any moment where you're sideways talking about something completely else, you gotta bring it back because it's not only their time, it's your time too. And especially when I had a kid, I was like, Oh my god, I wanna get back home Usually <laughs> you know, it's usually like three out one to three hours away from my home. So I was pretty much like, Okay, oh, wow. let's do this. Okay. Uh, and then I think the other thing is listeners are going to be excited to hear that you chose flowers and that you're working on making of flowers work. And you just seem to have a lot of business sense. But let's, because um, I want to respect your valuable time today. Do you want to tell us about something that grew well this year? Do I want to tell you something that what? Grew well this year? Grew well this year. Well, uh, pretty early in the year. Um, <laughs> or so... last year? Last, last year. Summer? Last season. Yeah, well, last year was a little bit different than other years, only because it seemed uh, the weather's changing 
here in South East right. Wisconsin as it probably <laughs> is in all the other places. And so our season has been changing a little bit. And we we managed to get the high tunnel, which is like one um it's like a greenhouse that's like super large hoops, maybe they're fifteen feet high from the ground level and this is our first one, so we got it up before we put it up in the fall of two thousand and fourteen. So we were able to use it in two thousand and fifteen. And that being said, it was our first year um where we could put crops that really like heat. So we put some uh bed of peppers in there, we put a bed of all sorts of heirloom tomatoes in there, and then I also put um, hyacinth bean, which is typically used as a cut flower, and that was a heat-loving thing, and we put, uh, oh, I just stuck some dahlias in there, and the, there's a big difference when you put plants in a greenhouse, I mean, A, they get that heat, B, which is here, wait, 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 hold on a sec. Skype's yeah. uh, giving me some feedback. Can you just say that again? There's a big difference. Just There's a difference between um, how things kind of grow in a high tunnel or a greenhouse versus out mm-hmm. in the field, obviously. Mm-hmm. And some of the subtle things is in a high tunnel, they're typically, unless you have it rigged in a certain way, they're not getting any rainwater. They're getting the, irrig- the well water from us. And Sometimes it makes me wonder if there's any difference, you, you know, in uh, whatever new trace minerals that you get from rainwater versus the water out of your well or whatnot. Sure. So, I mean, I actually this winter decided to, this is pretty silly, but I took some time and shoveled piles of snow in there. <laughs> Gosh darn it! I bet that snow has something in it that the well water doesn't. I don't know. And mind you, when you shovel snow in there, yeah, it doesn't make that much water, so it's pretty. Probably doesn't worth my time. But I I was just like, I want some rainwater in there. Um, Nonetheless, um, we had tomatoes through November, and which I never had before, and it didn't get blight because you're not getting the rainwater splashing on the soil and splashing up back at the plants. So all my tomatoes in my greenhouse are really beautiful and like no like splits or anything. And so that was an extra bonus. Um, I got more yields from there. And then our peppers, it was a warm summer. So even if your peppers are in the field, you probably were doing okay with ripening. But in prior years, our peppers really... Oh, it takes forever to ripen in Wisconsin, um, especially depending on the weather. You know, some weathers are dark. Some summers are more rainy or cooler than others. Mm-hmm. But this past summer was so awesome in that respect. And uh, I was able to grow these hyacinth beans, so hummingbirds are flying to our high tunnel, which is fun to be visited by there if I was working in there. And then I also planted lemon thyme in our high tunnel, and that could be planted outside, but um, we are zone five. It could have held out probably outside, but by being in our high tunnel, I think it kind of gave it the ability to get more established, and it's kind of nice to have a few perennials in a space 
where you can get things early, especially herbs. Herbs are just, I really enjoy growing herbs. Um, we put that in our CSA baskets every week and in our flower bouquets often. So those are my crops that did really well, I'd say. The tomato, mostly because of the high tunnel in the field. I don't know. That's All great. I can say is that, yeah, it, in the field, my peonies do always do really good. <laughs> nice. Peonies are awesome and they're hardy. Now, but, in Wisconsin, do they, our peonies come up just in the spring? Like I just was looking and they're just about to bloom, but then they're done. Do your peonies in Wisconsin last longer than that? Or maybe I need to plant them in six. Well, they're perennials, right? Ours are. Yeah, all peonies are perennials. You typically, I think they really like going through a winter to get a little cold period. Um, that's why I think Alaska has peonies. Um, they have a really good peony business businesses up there. But um, they, you, there's so many types of peonies. There's hundreds, hundreds of types. And now, our peonies have to be have to have like ants pollinate them or something they do they the ants help them open up they right you know peony buds are really sugary or juicy but i'm not sure technically what it is that's coming out some sweet sap and if you don't have ants in your peonies doing what they do on there they're not gonna blossom so yes right it's one of those symbiotic relationships or something and um so that being said, peonies can be, there's early blooming, mid-season blooming, and late-season blooming. Oh. There's peonies that are good for cut flowers or just good for, you know, having it in your garden. So my peony season can last maybe about four weeks. Mm-hmm. Typically, my early ones are coral in color. For whatever reason, I... I haven't found any coral varieties that bloom later. The peonies also can be cut and stored for a while in a refrigerator or you can dry wrap them if you cut them in the bud form and then whip them out when you want to use them in a flower arrangement. So a couple years ago, I did wedding flowers for a wedding um Jackie and Donovan of a wonderful musical band named Blessed Feathers. Check them out. Um, and they, she was getting married, oh, I think it was July 6th, perhaps. And she wanted a lot of like pastel-y colors, including coral. And so I saved my a bunch of coral peonies for her to put in her wedding bouquet. And I simply had a... I cut it, I dry stored it, wrapped it in paper, and then you cut it again and put it in water shortly before you want to use them. And so July 6th, she was able to have coral peonies where it would have bloomed late May. Um, so you can kind of extend peony season if you have the early, late, and mid I mean, my late ones start blooming, what, the third week of June, so I technically could cut it and maybe two weeks later still have a few peonies to put in arrangements. So, yeah. Awesome. Should answer <laughs> yeah, peonies, man. They're pretty, they're just awesome. I, uh, but, you know, 
there's a lot of awesome flowers and vegetables. Uh, so two things I wanted to say really quick. If listeners are interested, mm-hmm. um, do, have you read Richard Wiswall's book about um, the organic farmer business handbook? I think it's called. So I did an interview with him back in like November or something, but he wrote about, it's interesting Mm -hmm. because when I was trying to get one of those farms in New Jersey, I used his book to create business plans. So Mike could apply to be a manager. Um, But I just, Mm -hmm. I couldn't find a farm close enough to New York. Um, And then my parents are on the other side of New York and it just seemed like there was no, it was just too far away. The closest one I could find was 80 miles from the city. And for us, that just, it just seemed impractical. Anyway, that's not yeah. but um, his book is great uh, for helping you develop a, a business plan. But also, he when he came on, he talked about how growing tomatoes in a high tunnel, um, you know, you talked about how you didn't have any blight and just the difference. And he really recommended people growing tomatoes um, like that. And then also in February, I interviewed this guy, Andrew Malicelli from the um, NRCS, I think the National uh, Resource Conservation Service or something. And he talked about a program uh, in the United States where you can get money to um, put up one of those high tunnels. So the deadline was February yeah. 19th. So he came on my show like the 15th. Um, but I guess it's like a mm-hmm. national program anyway, or maybe it's a statewide program. But I think um, it's equipped. Are- Is it equipped? Um, E-Q-U-I-P. I don't know. I don't know. I haven't heard that. He was from the NRCS, the National Resource Conservation Service, I know. And we applied, and so, and it's kind of a similar situation. We're still waiting to find out. So we're probably, like, even if we do get them, um, we're going to be like you, where we won't be able to really use them until the next year. But I like the way you talked about that, and I I haven't really heard of anybody who's put perennials in there. So I like that part, too, and the time, and then I like the way that you were saying you put that in your CSA, and you put it in bouquets. And then I was thinking, like, yeah. also, is that, do you sell that to chefs? Is that one of your products you sell to well, chefs? Well, the, lem- the lemon thyme, yeah, we sell the lemon thyme to chefs, but my other herbs that I put in bouquets could be, like, pineapple mint or... Um, anise hyssop um, from the flower to the leaves because yeah mints are kind of nice because they're really green and they can kind of have dual colors they have scents of course there's lavender and all those things but I also wanted to mention that this high tunnel I I mean I'm still trying things out but this year I decided to try to grow ginger and turmeric now I don't think I'm actually going to get a big yield because when you grow ginger and turmeric, the best way to grow it is from the get-go, keep it in 70 degrees temperature. So that being said, I have it in my high tunnel, but it's not 70 in there all the time. So, and it takes six months before you can harvest ginger and turmeric. So this is just, I'm simply trying it out and, Maybe in years to come, I can improve. I did hear of a woman doing it in the northeast region of the United States, and she actually is using, um, I think, walking coolers, keeping the temperature at 70 degrees somehow with, like, all insulated. And the ginger in America is never exposed to the sun because you're growing the roots, and I guess it's more of the warmth, and it doesn't really need the light. So that was interesting to hear. The people who sold me the certified organic ginger and turmeric roots told me that 
one of their clients was doing that. So that was extremely interesting, and I'd love to learn more about that, but I guess next winter if I ever find out information. Um, we're getting a wind turbine this year, too. Not a very big one, but it will enable us, you know, to get off the grid a little bit. And we, at this time, don't plug in any walk-in coolers or anything. We have simply a small refrigerator because we don't want to spend a bunch of money on electric costs. But who knows, after we get a wind turbine, we might be able to get a, use a walk-in cooler whether it's for turmeric or ginger, or maybe I need one designated for flowers or what have you, um, it will be great to explore that more because to really extend some of your crops, having those tools are nice. But I, and there's other ways. You don't have to have a walk-in cooler. You can use an air conditioner. They're called Coolbox systems and make a little room and that can be your cooling space. But for me, And then, besides, you know, the electric costs, it's just, it's not very green to us because even when I grew up in New Jersey, for instance, my whole house was air-conditioned except for my bedroom because that was my bedroom and I did not want to be responsible for putting more of those nasty carbons in the air. And why would I want to do it on my farm? For what? So... Staying small and our CSA we harvest the day of. We couldn't do that if we had a hundred CSA shares. So we have thirty five that we kinda of break into different delivery days. And that's the way we do it. Even when we harvest from market, it's all harvested Friday afternoon. That's our Friday evenings. We don't go out and hang out with people. Sometimes we do it in the mornings on Fridays, but sometimes it depends on what our schedule is like and what we need to get done. And the weather, of course, if it's raining, we'll shift it to morning or afternoon. But, you know, that's how fresh our stuff is. And that's the nature of being, of us deciding to be small scale and not getting the big equipment. But if we get this, when we get this wind turbine, which is on our property, it just has to be put in place. Um, it hopefully will maybe change a few things maybe we can extend like for me flowers it might be helpful in that department or just helpful or maybe we could use growing and turmeric who knows so it's just going to open more doors for us and we're very excited about it um, i'm just going to quickly ask you because i want to kind of keep us moving because we're already close to an yeah. hour i um, know we're, we're probably where talking are you getting forever. your ginger and turmeric I talked to this woman, Jenny Jackson, down in Georgia, and I remember her telling me, like, there's, like, one place in Hawaii. Is that where you're getting yours, or do you know another source? Yeah. No, that was Hawaii. It is. And, okay. Uh, yeah. And honestly, I, I didn't even think of it till kind of late in the game. And so the more renowned business, I don't even know the name of it, was sold out already. So I found another one that had certified organic in Hawaii and the more renowned business has ginger lilies oh yeah I'm, I'm going to try to grow that next year ginger lilies <laughs> like ginger. flowers yeah so yeah so they're cut flowers so it's it's a ginger plant but it must be slightly more cultivated for ginger flowers so you don't but they grow smell. it really for the roots to eat and oh 
boy, are they pretty. Makes me want them everywhere. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I'd be surprised. I, I'd, it'd be a challenge to grow it, but it'd be interesting to learn how to grow it because you're really going to have something that nobody, nobody else locally has, as well as um, like the turmeric and ginger root. They're pretty hot items right now, among other things. Oh. You know, I, I was I mean, wondering because it yeah. seems like everybody who says ginger says ginger and turmeric together. Like, I haven't really had anybody say one without the other. Well, they're different, for sure, in flavors and stuff. Right? But they're grown pretty similar. They're grown pretty similarly. And uh, they, they, yeah, they must be in the same family. They like the same heats. I don't know if they have really the same health benefits, but I I actually don't know a lot about the nutritional side of that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, I, I I don't want to take up too much more of the podcast because yeah, people fine. might get bored listening. But I, I wanted to mention, you know, we don't just grow the flowers and the vegetables. We also really encourage native plants being grown here. So we grow, we use a lot nice. of permaculture ideas and how we set up our farm. And um, we have a hedgerow of elderberries and hazelnuts and it. They're the native ones. We didn't plant a bunch of cultivated, wonderful, nice varieties. We wanted to really stay with as much native plants. So it's kind of like a domestic cultivated farm, whatever space. And it slowly creeps back to nature, you know, kind of like our borders have the native plants. And then as you get more in the center stuff, you find all the fun domestic stuff. So it's this is important to us to keep native plants on our property, encouraging our native insects and whatnot. To I mean, and we we have our birdhouses and stuff. We we like animals. We want to try to work with nature as much as we can. And farming inherently, you're not always working with nature, but here we we try our best to. And that, so that's why we farm kind of in a French intensive kind of gardening style, um, which creates like the deeper tilts, and we use broad forks, and everything's hand planted and hand hoed. Um, but that that's the scale we chose. You go bigger, you really can't do it at that scale. Um, and besides like selling to the places, so we do host events. So we do have. Um, a wellness weekend in June coming up and, and that we're doing with a local nutritionist. And that's having yoga, eating food from the farm, making flower crowns, flower arrangements. And then we do several dinners on the farm. Um, we'll have three this summer with Braised Local Food. And we're, we're also going to host one for a local garden club for their fundraiser. So, you know, when you have a small farm, sometimes you got to do a lot of different things to keep it to keep it going. Yeah, so. uh, I just we just had a giveaway for my show last month with Anastasia Cole Placaeus's book, "The Farm on the Roof." But she talks a lot about how exactly that that you have to kind of like find other ways. Everybody, you really need to be an educator, but you also can like events mm -hmm. is a big part of their success to make their business turn yes. profit. And that was a big part of what they wanted yeah. to do was make sure they were turning a profit. Um, 
that it is a sustainable business and that this is something people can look to do green jobs like you're saying i love your passion for the environment i just know listeners you're going to totally resonate with listeners and especially like i just have to quickly very shortly so today's may 4th and this morning mike and i were hearing on the news um that there's like some huge fire in alberta canada and like 150,000 people 50,000 people were evacuated from this forest fire already may 4th alberta canada north of me like a gas station this i heard this on the news this morning on the canadian news and we were just like oh my gosh you know let's hope we get some spring rains so just quickly so i just (laughs) love your passion for caring about the environment thinking about electricity and your air conditioner I'm going to skip down. So Mike gave me this new thing for the ending questions of my show, the second half, which we're only at the second half, but we'll get there called, um, what did he say? Getting to the root of it. So are you ready to get to the root of it? Yeah, bring it. Okay, here we go. What is your least favorite activity to do in the garden? Is there something you have to force yourself to get out there and do, Jackie? Um, You know, because everything is so hand-done. I don't, and then, yeah, this is my least favorite, and I usually don't have to do it. I only had to do it this winter because Dan was gone for the winter, and that's a whole other story. But um, it's spreading manure. It's because we do it with a wheelbarrow and a shovel, and I can't hold as much you. compost in a wheelbarrow as Dan can. So it's, you know, it's just one of those monotonous jobs. You, you shovel the manure into the wheelbarrow and then you walk it down to the spot and you shovel it out all nice and even on that garden bed. So I and I really don't, don't have to do it very often, but like I said, this spring and last fall, I had to do it a little bit because Dan took a job for the winter in New York building oh my goodness. the yeah. first building, the first emission air scrubber in the United States on the international cement production plant for Lafarge Cement Company. So, what's an air scrubber? <laughs> it cleans the emissions. What that place was a place that produces cement, and is the biggest company in the world for cement. And this is one of their main plants in the United States. So the air scrubber. Has been used in Germany since the 1990s, but with Obama's legislation over the past seven years, finally, this is the first one to actually be built in America. Um, and so the the emissions from producing the cement will go through some pipes into this air scrubber, and there's most multiple windows with little scrubbers, I guess, that come out and somehow clean that that exhaust or whatever it is that's coming out. So once it enters the atmosphere, it will be a little bit cleaner. And so all the blueprints are from Germany. And they they Dan and his brother and a couple other guys were building that this winter. And they're still building it. Dan had to leave to come back to the farm. Oh, okay. Well, cool. Well, we're glad he's back. Okay, so tell us on the flip side, what's your favorite activity to do while Dan's over there hauling the compost around? I love, well, I lo- it's kind of a combo activity. It's, it's, I love harvesting. I love it because you're seeing what you're bringing in, and I love the way my hands smell afterwards, whether it's from vegetables, onions, tomatoes, 
or it's simply the flowers and the herbs. It's it's really lovely. And of course, I like arranging the flower arrangements. So selecting things and knowing what is good to harvest and then putting it together. I mean, basically the end part. And I love sharing, being able to take something from our land and knowing that it's going to be consumed or enjoy really shortly thereafter. So like selling the chefs, oh, I love selling the chefs because I know they're going to make something amazing out of our food and there's going to be a bunch of people eating it like that night or the next day. So it, it feels good to be spreading nutrition and beauty beyond our property in that way. So those are the things that I like. I love it. Okay. Uh, I could ask you more, but I'm not going to. What's the best gardening <laughs> advice you have ever received? I mean, I could, like, I just, I love the way you said, um, knowing what's good to harvest. Uh, that's just such a great thing because that is kind of a skill. Like that was a big lesson I learned last summer, but like I said, I'm going to move on. What's the best gardening yeah. advice you have ever received? I think it is make sure you find time for yourself because with farming, it's, Anybody that is managing land, farming, gardening on a large scale, whatever it is, there's there's never nothing not to do. And you can drive yourself crazy with all the things you need to do. Like what we do, we run a business, we market it, we grow it, we sell it, we order it, we plan it. I mean, it just goes on and on. We, t- we teach it, we host things at our farm. And at the same time, you know, everything's got to grow nicely. You kind of keep up with everything, and then you get nature throwing stuff at you. So sometimes we really, it's important to back away, make time for yourself, find the activity that you're passionate about that may not be part of what you're trying to do for a living, and just take that time to do it, whether it's meditation, maybe it's a sport, a hike every week. Even if you got kids, you gotta find time for yourself because you'll it'll just you'll yeah. burn yourself out, and you'll and, start to resent it, and you don't want to. Do yeah, that. it becomes less enjoyable. Um, so you always want to keep that enjoyment there, and so it's important. There's always a balance when you are self-employed too. Like I think it's not even just farming or gardening. It's when you're self-employed, man. You are there's a lot on your plate. It's kind of a lot of hats you wear. So that's okay. what you got to do. Uh, okay. What's your favorite tool that you like to use? Like if you had to move again and could only take one tool with you, or is there something that you took with you? What could you not live without? <laughs> well, it probably would be a spade fork because that's what I use to hand weed all that quack grass out of my perennial beds. <laughs> and the more perennial beds you have and the more you do organically, you you might be using the space work. Now, I say that Dan would say a hand hoe. He's really mastered the hand hoe. But for me, I end up doing the latter part of weed suppression, the actual forking out. Um, so even though when I'm 75, forking weeds out is going to be a bit more challenging. So. Oh yeah, that's what I was gonna say. You were talking about you didn't want to do the plant the apple trees when you were older. Mike just planted our apple orchard, and he is gonna be sixty three this year, I think. So well, you yeah, can do it. Old, but... <laughs> you totally can do it. But I, I just wanted to reap the benefits. No. 
But he would have planted our orchard years ago. I mean, he's like, he's been dreaming about that ever since I met him. And just, you know, the fact we, we finally dug a well two years ago and that's what brought the orchard on. Or I'm not sure if planting the orchard didn't bring the well, but one or the other, they came like the same year. Anyway, how about a favorite recipe you like to cook from the garden? Oh, you know, um, I, I can't, I cannot just repeat. I don't think I can repeat a recipe just off the top of my head. Yeah. When but we just cook, like what's your favorite when, meal when to we cook? cook like, we, nobody's given me a recipe yet, I mean, partly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we, um, we simply, there's a few things maybe I like doing, but when you have all the ingredients at your hand, what we end up doing is just take whatever we have, either A, what already is harvested, or we'll run out and get stuff. Of course, when you grow stuff, the non-perfect stuff ends up in your refrigerator a lot. So we usually have a pretty full refrigerator of stuff. But we put it all together. We we don't really follow a lot of recipes. There's mm-hmm. ways to cook food. You know, you might cook the onions longer, put the greens in later, put the garlic in towards the end of sauteing. We... Uh, but we basically cook it all together because the fresh flavors, the fresh herbs, that's all you really need to make something. We make um, something that we do that's pretty easy in the summertime is uh, foil packs on the grill, and maybe you can put in parchment paper if you don't like to use foil, and you cut up all your vegetables, and you season it with oil and the herbs you want, you salt and pepper, you put it in the foil pack, you throw it on the grill, you let it cook for a while, and then, you know, however long you like to roast it for, you take it off, and then you have, like, all these delicious vegetables all roasted and flavored up with your herbs and stuff, so that's really what we do. I mean, we have archives of recipes, and we can send stuff to people, but boy, we don't, we typically don't use them. We just just cook and eat. Yep. I like that. I always thought if I made a cookbook, it'd be the three color cookbook. Something, as long as I have three colors thrown together, that's all I need. That sounds a lot like what you're doing. There you doing. go. Uh, yeah. I mean, when a... we throw the beets in there, everything turns colorful. Yeah, that's true. How about, do you have a favorite internet resource? Is there a place you like to go to find information? Um... Well, with Facebook, I, I am a part of some Facebook groups, so I I check out that. With Facebook groups, you can, you know, type in the search button what you want to learn about, and they'll find it in that thread, and then you can really see what other people have discussed on that, that site. Um, I've, I've haven't really looked at a lot of online resources that I can pinpoint as of late, I have a lot of books. I think that's great. And I like the way you mentioned the search button within the Facebook group. So if you're looking for like, you know, tomato blight or you're looking for aphids on my cucumbers or something, just like, I'm, but yeah, there's that little search bar and Facebook searches. It's not perfect, but it's, it's really good. And that's a great, I think that's yeah, a great resource. And, it, and if I you're part Facebook of groups, groups, you've already, you're already in that group. So that will already be found out and and people are very generous on Facebook they'll put links up there so there's those things I mean I have a few books that I've completely read and have inspired me um we we use like a, a 
the orthos, no, um, a companion planted book by Rodell. There's also the uh, the J.I. Rodell Encyclopedia of Organic Gardening. So those are, I mean, that Encyclopedia of Organic Gardening, that's an old book, but it's super applicable to what we do today. And then we are influenced by um, some biodynamic books. Like There's a book called Culture and Horticulture. It's a philosophy of gardening by Wolf D. Storl. And that was a book I read a long time ago, like in 2005, and I really, it's... Uh, I took to it, so that was great. And then another book that we're influenced by, because we do have a hill and we're starting to put terraces on our hill for growing. Mm-hmm. So there's a book called The Farmers of 40 Centuries, and that's organic farming in China, Korea, and Japan by F.H. King. And it's simply amazing, you know, for more than 40,000 years, these Asian farmers worked these fields repeatedly, and it's just amazing the way the terraces work and how skilled those people in China and Korea and Japan have been in growing organically. So, you know, we've taken stuff from French intensive organic farming to China and Korean and Japanese farming and, yeah, ideas come from all over. So the Internet is great resource and I'm sure you know a lot of good solid resources. I mean there's there are places like Moses, that's just the Midwest organic um source for organic information. Other places like Atra A T T R A is a good web site that can give you links for organic farming. And I'm sure there's oodles more. Cool. I have the Moses and the Atra one other people have recommended, but I don't have that book and I think I'm gonna get that about the China, Korea, and Japan, because uh, like I said, our house is on the top of a hill and we're always walking down the hill there to you the go. garden. And so we can put some stuff on the hillside. Okay, ready for the yeah. final question? Here we go. Okay. If there's one change you would like to see, Jackie, to create a greener world, what would it be? For example, is there a charity or organization you're passionate about or a project you'd like to see put into action? Like, what do you feel is the most crucial issue facing our planet regarding the environment, either locally, nationally, or on a global scale? Oh, that's a, that's a big question, huh? Um, locally, globally, oh man, I... <laughs> well, I think local is pretty important. So, is that's where you educate people. Okay, and I have to set a grassroots level. Um, but you're asking what organization? That's perfect. Nope, that's exactly. Nope. that's the kind all of you. That's all you for. need to hear. Yeah, because it's yeah, it's local. You gotta educate the people next door to you as well as the people 40 miles from you. Um, you, you know, I don't want to. Maybe I'm diverting a bit, but even on Facebook, it's like you can learn a lot through Facebook, but sometimes it's not the place. To discuss things and sometimes really just talking direct to a person is where you want to talk about things because um, a lot of times on Facebook people already have their minds made up anyway maybe I'm getting off topic so yeah at local level just local level educating people is really the only way you're gonna help people in their minds 
be aware of what's happening globally, et cetera, et cetera, and locally. It's all part of the same. We're all connected, man. It's all, we all got to care, frankly. I think that's really important. I think, I mean, I know without a doubt, listeners are going to love this interview. You are just, you know, connecting and just teaching us tons of stuff and, um, you know how people always talk about your avatar. I know you are one of my avatars out there, like the person that I like to talk to. And so I know they're going to love hearing all this. So I know your husband's watching cool. your kids and you want to get back to them. So just quickly, do you have an inspirational tip or quote to help motivate listeners to reach into the dirt and start their own garden? God, um, you should have told me not that before. I could have come up with something. I... I, uh, oh, no, 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 just anything. Quote. Like, and you've given us tons of inspiration today anyway. Um, man, I wish Dan was useful that he's a bit of a philosopher. So, God, I don't know. Can I email well, I'm you? I'm hoping more? he's going to come on separately. <laughs> um, I was thinking, let's see, what did you say that was like the perfect answer for this that you had said earlier about, um, um, you know, I think also, you know, education is important that I think education from young to old, you know, like really exposing and helping others get back to nature um, and learning about where their food you know, food doesn't just show, it's not just from the grocery store, it's from people and farmers. And the thing about farming and food, it's very much a part of humanity. You know, where would human beings be without food and agriculture? So, um, I don't know. I, I think that is absolutely perfect. Just what I was looking for. You, All right, just tell listeners really yeah, quick you, how to connect with you. What's your website that's full of beautiful pictures and information and stuff? It is willowayfarm.com. And so that would be, if I should spell it, W-I-L-L-O-W-A-Y-F-A-R-M as in Mary, dot com. Perfect. Well, thank you so, yeah, so we got much, Jackie, for sharing everything today with us. Okay. I'll put the link Wonderful. to Facebook and your website. And I'm glad you spelled it because I couldn't remember if it had two W's or not in the middle. Yeah, it's like, a little tricky. Willow Way mm-hmm. or Willow Way. Uh, so that's good that you spelled it. It's always good on a podcast to spell things. So, well, thank you yeah. so much. I will... Um, send you the link when it's live and uh just i really appreciate it it's so fun because now we connected through dr on right yeah yeah that was it eh? Mm -hmm. and then yes because you were going to maybe help me with putting podcasts up so the one thing listeners i'm just adding this little part in is i thought you would be interested in is so dr on is in my uh, podcasting group and she connected Jackie and I and it's so funny that she lived right here in Fortine but meanwhile we met through and uh, I'm gonna find Dr. On's podcast so um, because the her her podcast is called Food as Medicine with Dr. On and her name is spelled A-N-H um, and her like I said her podcast is Food as Medicine with Dr. On she's a pharmacist health coach and nutritionist 
Um, and it's, I just thought that was so funny that she had said, I have this friend Jackie and she needs some help with her podcast. She has a farm. She'd be a great guest on your show. And this was like right when I first launched last January or February or something. And then here, Jackie, she's finally come on my show because she's such a busy woman as we just heard. But also, and then she had lived in Fortine, Montana, just six miles from me at a different time, worked for the Forest Service right in the Kootenai National Forest where we live. And Mike and I met. So anyway, just um, if you're interested, her podcast, Food is Medicine, um, is something you all might be interested in. I like to listen to it. She's got great guests on there and talks about um, just really interesting things. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Have you been to the Organic Gardener podcast website and signed up for our email list? If you go there, you will get my new PDF, Seven Awesome Ways to Find More Time in Your Garden. And it's just some tips that I've learned from listening to my amazing guests who are always sharing with us super effective ways to be a better gardener. So if you um, head over to the organicgardenerpodcast.com and enter your email, you'll get seven awesome ways to find more time in your garden. You can also get a copy of our ebook of Organic Gardening Basics. And just um, all the show notes are there, all the links to our show. So, and I'll be sending out some golden seeds newsletters as I get them done. And of course, you'll get a special invitation to join the Organic Gardener Podcast Facebook community. Hope to see you there.